Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Welcome, everyone, to the American Reformer podcast. I'm Ben Dunson, the editor-in-chief of American Reformer. And with me, as usual, is our executive director, Josh Abitoy. Today, uh, we are going to talk about religious freedom, and we're going to talk about pluralism. Of course, this week uh, has seen uh, a great tragedy um, in Nashville in the shooting um, at the um, at the Covenant School, and um, our our prayers are with all of those who are affected. It's it's kind of hard to even grasp um, how how they must be doing right now. Um, we know that that the Lord's with them, and we know that uh, they they grieve, but not without hope. So uh, we grieve with them. Um, these are these are dark times in our country, and um, and we will will continue to to keep them in prayer. What what's prompted our our talk this week is uh, a variety of uh, legislation uh, legislative bills that have gone uh, before the Texas legislature. Um, Josh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about? Um, some of these these bills and what's going on with them? Sure, yeah. There's a suite of bills that um, at a high level, I would say, are moving Texas state law to formalize a pluralistic arrangement with respect to various religions in the state of Texas. So the big one is a bill that is going to add a slew of non-Christian holidays as uh, optional holidays. Uh, and the primary primary cash out, it, it affects uh, state government. Um, but I mean, probably the way most people will feel this is it affects schools. So if you're a teacher or a student, there's now a slew of new holidays that you can um, take off with any without any sort of special exemption that are just, you know, if you, if you fall into a certain group, this is now for, for you. It's a, it's a, uh, a holiday that you can take if you want it. Um, and so most, many of these are our Muslim holidays, I believe there's a couple Hindu holidays that have proposed to be added and even one Buddhist holiday, I think, um, and maybe a, perhaps a, a Sikh holiday. That That's one bill. Um, handful of smaller bills uh, that are just making little tweaks to language and various statutes. Um, so for instance, you know, the law, the law for marriage currently says that Christian ministers, Jewish rabbis, or any other person who is an officer of a religious organization uh, can officiate a marriage. So what they're doing is they're, they're tweaking the language in that law to delete the reference to Christian ministers and Jewish rabbis. So instead, it will simply read a person who's an officer of a religious organization. Okay, doesn't really change the effect of the law much, right? But it's it's, it's kind of an intentional, and this is a bipartisan project. Um, to kind of formalize a, a sort of pluralism in Texas law, right? Like a neutrality with respect to uh, with respect to various religions. Um, I mean, they're de- they're decentering. They're de- they're deliberately decentering Christianity and Judaism with that that language. As as um, I mean, you might not notice that when you first read it, but 
um, that, that seems to be the intent, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's right. And it's, again, it's bipartisan. It's being led by a freshman um, Democratic rep. And then it's being led by actually my former representative, J.C. Jetton, uh, who's a Republican from the Houston suburb. Okay. Um, and, you know, I mean, this is a fascinating story. I'm really interested in, in the way the, the rhetoric that's being used, you know, um, to, to defend these changes, you know. Um, and, and I think it, it tees up a very interesting conversation about pluralism in our government and whether, whether total neutrality is possible. Um, the, these, these laws by themselves, they don't seem at first blush to be particularly ambitious, but, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting to dig in and understand the, look at them as examples of how, you know, even a lot of conservative Republicans conceive of, of pluralism and the possibility of a neutral public square. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm reading, uh, I'm reading a a quote from, um, from one of these representatives, um, Salman um, Bajani. So he's a, a democratic rep who is, um, who's Muslim in Texas. And he says, as legislators, it is our duty to ensure that Texas is the religious freedom state where we can practice our faith with pride. So this is America. What's wrong with that? Uh, isn't that, isn't that what we've always believed? Um, yeah. Um, well, well, yeah. And the, the, yeah, it's not, um, I don't think, I don't think it's the case that any religion is being stopped from exercising their religion with pride as the law stands today. Um, you know, but this is really, you know, this is seeking the official governmental imprimatur on those holidays. Mm. Um, and yeah, yeah. I wasn't aware of any, uh, Muslim, um, or, um, Hindu in Texas who was prevented from practicing their faith before, um, you know, if, if these laws didn't pass. Yeah, I'm, I'm not aware of any either. I mean, there's always, you know, there's probably fringe cases, you know, I don't know. There's, I, I would guess at some point in Texas's history, there's been a small town somewhere that used zoning laws to stop the construction of a mosque that, that wouldn't shock me if something like that's occurred or, you know, the other thing sometimes you see is, um, you know, prisoners who don't get uh, all of the religious liberty allowances they would like, you know, so I think there is a, I don't know if it came out of Texas, but, okay. you know, there was a case about, um, you know, prison had a rule about people um, having their hair cut short and not, you know, not being allowed to have hats. And there was a Sikh who litigated that issue. Um, but I don't recall, I don't recall where, which state that case came out of, but, but those sorts of things happen occasionally, you know, the broader context, just fascinating, but social conservatives were not really generally like religious liberty advocates um, historically. Uh, And there there was a change. It it kind of happened. There was a case um, in the early 90s called Employment versus Smith. This is where the state of Washington fired an employee who smoked peyote. um, And the employee... uh, said it was part of his religion. It was a religious right uh, to do so. The state of Washington had a, uh, a facially neutral, broadly applicable law that just said you can't smoke peyote and you get fired if you do. And uh, that got litigated up to the Supreme Court and Scalia writing for the majority in that case, he, he basically said, no, the state of Washington can ban the smoking of peyote. If it's, a, if it's a generally applicable law that's not targeting a particular religion, it's just setting out a requirement you know the state can uh, the state can uh, 
can enforce that, even if it does, uh, you know, in some cases infringe on the exercise of a particular religion. Now, you know, that was the early 90s. This was the, um, I guess this was the period that Aaron Wren likes to call the positive world where Christianity was, you know, a majority. It was a dominant influence in society. Um, the, a lot of the early moral majority guys, you know, you read their stuff. They, they, um, you know, they, they weren't necessarily, they were kind of okay with a Christian majority making rules um, with the understanding that that would, that would ultimately require some, some sacrifice or wouldn't fully, you know, wouldn't fully, in, in some cases would limit the exercise of minority religions. Fast forward to today and what happened is a, a pretty remarkable switch where social conservatives um, have jumped onto a very expansionist reading of the First Amendment. So, so in other words, they've jumped onto a reading that says, you know, you know, our, our religious beliefs, they may be nuts, but they deserve protection from majorities. It's happened because Christians have, uh, conservative Christians have gone from being, a, you know, at least a solid plurality to being a minority. And particularly in some states. And so there's a tactical benefit um, to, you know, essentially becoming, um, you know, lowercase p pluralists um, and, you know, adopting a very expansionist reading of the Establishment Clause and how it binds state action. So, you know, I mean, the, 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 I mean, the, you know, David French, I mean, I feel bad we beat up on him a lot here, but he, uh, he's kind of one of the famous proponents of this viewpoint, you know, Paul Miller recently wrote a bit, book about this, but it's not just those guys. It's, you know, there's a lot of um, religious liberty organizations, some of whom are extremely effective in court, by the way, like ADF, hmm. who have, you know, for them, a case like Employment v. Smith, uh, in some cases, has become a bit of a boogeyman. That's exactly what we don't want the government doing today. Um, because, you know, uh, we, we want carve outs from laws to protect religious liberty. Um, you know, so with respect to marriage, we lost the broader policy debate on same sex marriage, right? But we want protections in the law for Christian institutions. We don't want colleges or Christian schools to be stripped of funding because of their views on marriage. And there's probably a lot of, there's probably a lot of, I mean, so French is, 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 a, is, is increasingly a very extreme example um, in a lot of ways, and, and uh, Paul Miller as well. Um, it, it seems to me there's probably a lot of people that that aren't so extreme that that think that, like you said, that maybe that's the only way for Christians to even be protected yeah. any longer. You know, is that that we're actually going to be forced out of the public square if we if we don't. Um, if we don't find some way to just have these carve outs, I mean, do you think that's probably what's, what's, um, motivating a lot of people? Yeah, I do. I think, um, yeah, in some cases, I, I think that's what's, what's motivating people. Um, and, uh, look, I mean, it, it's a complicated question because, you know, I have deep, like theoretical challenges with pluralism. I don't think a neutral public square is possible. We can. I want to get into some of the reasons why, but at the same time, I don't think we can just dismiss this tactical judgment that says, "Well, even if that's the case, the best thing to do in 2023 is um, lean into an expansionist reading of the First Amendment, lean into 
the minority protections that are found in there um, because that's what we are now. We're a minority and that's really all we've got. Um, that's the only move that we have left. Um, so, so I don't, I don't want to discount that argument, but I do want to talk through there, there's when you adopt that posture, there's trade-offs. And so I want to talk through some of those today. You know, I think, um, you, you know, one, one observation just from the top is that pluralism uh, came to American society as, as a bit of a Trojan horse, you know, at a time when America was, you know, would have self-identified 95% as Christian, we started to have a string of cases uh, that de-Christianized the public square, right? So 1947, the Everson case says that the First Amendment uh, and the Establishment Clause in there applies to state governments. And this is a big, this is an important turning point um, you know, the Bill of Rights and and uh, the First Amendment on their face appear to only limit uh, federal action. Congress shall make no law. Right. And mm-hmm. so so when the you know, when 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 that's taken then and applied to a state, it kind of inverts the the uh, meaning of the Bill of Rights. Like originally, the Bill of Rights was a limitation on federal power with the reservation of the rest to the states via the 10th amendment. And, you know, if that, if that bargain is breached, really it's the, it's the, you know, it's the states or, or an individual's, you know, suing the federal government for breaking the bill of rights, but in incorporation that, that arrangement is inverted. And now you have like individuals who are resident in a state going to the federal government and calling the federal government down on the state in which they live. Mm. So, you know, that, that, um, it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a pattern of behavior that wasn't really foreseen by the framers of the constitution. Um, and it, it really did represent a, the, the widespread incorporation of the bill of rights against the states and represented sort of a, a very fundamental structural, uh, change in our, in our constitutional arrangement. Yeah. That's not, that's not something, I mean, that, that's a, a much more recent thing. So, I mean, if you if you're going to look at history fairly, you'd you'd have to recognize that at least uh, two thirds of American history that is that's a very foreign idea, very foreign approach. You know, I was thinking about the um, we had a quote. This was uh, sometime last year when uh, Tom and Klein had written for us um, on on whether America is a Christian nation, and and he had quoted from the Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story in his famous uh, commentaries on the Constitution, who had said, piety, religion, and morality are intimately connected with the well-being of the state and to the administration of civil justice. And uh, he's saying that this is, a, this is actually a compelling government interest and that Americans who ascribe to Christianity, um, for them, it's, quote, the special duty of government to foster and encourage it among all citizens and subjects. And so that's that's a Supreme Court justice who is active for most of the first half of the 19th century. Um, and that, would you say that is more um, common in American history uh, than kind of post um, 19, <laughs> late 1940s jurisprudence? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I mean, obviously we've, we've had a lot of stuff in our pages talking about the establishment that particular states had well after our founding. So we had states with established state churches, state religion, uh, for decades after our founding. Uh, some of those persisted for quite a while. Um, 
you know, and then even even after even after a lot of the formal establishment ceased, like an arrangement where the state has to issue a license for a church or give some sort of special status or has religious tests, some of that melted away during the, you know, a lot of a lot of it. I think it was gone by the time the Second Great Awakening had rolled around, um, which makes sense, right? With an explosion of low churches, um, you know, that, that presents a real challenge to like sort of the established church. But even after all of that went away, of course, there was there was broad consensus that we're a Christian nation. Um, you know, yeah, perhaps the state's not going to pick amongst various Protestant denominations, but, you know, we're going to have public explicitly Christian prayer. Our holidays were a Christian nation. Our holidays will be Christian holidays. Um, you know, it, the the Christian character of our people will be reflected in lots of various ways, including governmental action. Um, and that was all relatively uncontroversial until the post-war era. Um, so, so yeah, so, so, but, but, you know, then we get the post-war era. We're still a, a society that largely self-identifies as Christian overwhelmingly. And, and then we have our Supreme Court uh, starting to aggressively apply the establishment clause against states, getting prayer out of schools, getting the Bible out of schools. Um, all of kind of building off of the Everson case I just mentioned. And at the same time, we've got philosophers of pluralism um, advocating for a neutral public square. They say the government should be, um, should allow for viewpoint diversity. Um, they say things like laws should not be publicly defended unless you can defend them using um, public reason, which means uh, not a reason that's particular to your religion, but a reason that is accept that could be accepted by someone from any religion or any comprehensive viewpoint. Which, from a Christian standpoint, means that it is literally impossible to argue for what is true on the basis of what is true. Right. Yes. Yes. It. it it's kind of. I, I guess at its best, you know, it's kind of like, hey, there's lots of different competing viewpoints. And essentially, the laws that you can pass represent almost like a lowest common denominator, right? Like, like you know, all the different religions are these overlapping Venn diagrams. And the law that you can pass is a law that can, can be justified to all, to all of those different circles. In theory, sounds pretty clean, pretty good. Um, but in practice, I, I think it was Dworkin is, is a liberal philosopher he kind of, I mean, sort of famously, um, he gave some examples of laws that could be justified to various religions using public reason. And one of his primary examples was uh, pro-abortion policies. Um, and and the, the, the way he got there was, you know, reasoning through um, autonomy, harm, uh, you know, secular categories like this. And so what, what we need to, what we need to come to see is that the pluralist push in the post-war era, it actually, um, well, it, well, it feigns to say that we'll only pass a law that's acceptable to all these different overlapping Venn diagrams. Um, in practice, that's just, that's actually completely unworkable. There's, there's some policies where it's a binary. It's like, choose, choose one or the other. You, you have to make a choice. You can't be neutral. Um, and then, you know, the, um, and then the way that you end up mediating the differences between two religious groups is extremely important. And really, it boils down to 
the harm principle, the physical harm principle out of John Stuart Mills. It's basically like you can't hurt another person without their consent. And that's a basis for the government being allowed to intervene. So no, no, my, no revival of Mayan uh, religion, I guess. Well, yeah, yeah, pr- presumably. Um, and then, and then the other one would be consent, you know, especially for minors, um, you know, uh, so, so there's some, you know, and we can, we should get to that, but th- those are supposed to be the neutral principles that help mediate the difference between two different religious groups. So, so like, you know, you, you'll, you know, famous, I mean, when people talk about religious liberty and pluralism, you know, that you know, famous example, you've got a Jehovah's witness family and they don't, they, they think it's wrong to accept a blood transfusion and their, their child is in an accident and needs a blood transfusion to, to live. Can the government force a blood transfusion procedure on that child? Um, you know, that, that's sort of, um, you know, the conflicts like this are, are sort of pointing at the strains in, in, um, in the pluralist framework. Um, you know, it, harm gets really tough in our modern era where, um, you know, it's, it becomes a battle of the experts. Um, and we're going to, you know, conservative religious people are going to lose battles of the experts. Um, yeah. right. I mean, you'll get a study that says you are irreparably harming this child by not allowing them to have a, uh, to have their genitals surgically removed. Um, yeah, which is exactly what yeah. we're seeing already, and and it's and it's um it's it's probably going to be increasingly used to justify a suppression of of Christianity. Yes, yes, and then and then you know similarly with consent, uh, and this is this is where it gets this, this is scary stuff. Um, the the transgendered movement has has advanced and said that um, minors can consent. You know, minors know. They're ready. They should be empowered with a decision as to whether a six-year-old, they should be empowered with a decision as to whether they, you know, become transgendered. A prepubescent kid can, can, can consent to taking a puberty blocker to, you know, irreparable, permanent, life-changing surgeries. Um, and that's happening today. And then the, the kind of the vanguard of the, of the moral revolution is uh, is actually starting to chatter about the possibility of minors giving consent to sex, um, which is you know mm-hmm. I mean it's it's really scary, but you know it starts in the universities, it starts at very respectable places like Oxford, then it ends up you know it ends up in right. law in, in your favorite uh, petri dish blue states, and then it it goes out from there. Um, I mean I I, uh, I like to think that's a bridge we won't cross, but I mean. After the last ten years, are you? you know, like, I don't think anybody's feeling all that confident. Oh, that's yeah. crazy. That'll never happen. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it turns out that the harm principle and consent are just as contested as the truth of, of mm-hmm. religious claims. Um, so that's not going to serve as some sort of infallible bedrock principle that all can agree on any more than anything else. Um, that's just going to be who, who gets to define what harm is and who gets to define what consent is. And, uh, things are not headed in a, in a good direction on that for sure. And I, I, um, point here and I, I've got to, uh, credit, uh, Robbie George with this, um, I had a class with him back in law school and, and he asked a quest, a very simple question that, that 
uh, I was a libertarian at the time. And I, you know, uh, this discussion and the question really were formative in me leaving libertarianism behind. But he said, he said, you know, notice what's going on when you adopt a physical harm principle. You're saying physical harm is real. Other types of harm aren't. What about moral harm? Exactly. You know, what, what, what about, you know, as Christians, we believe that let's take, you know, for example, pornography. Now, I, I think that we probably can and should have studies that show how pornography is, you know, leads to antisocial behavior. It's destructive. We can we can do that stuff. But the really the straightforward case for why pornography uh, should be illegal is is a moral harm. It's degrading. It degrades the morals. It you know it it it, uh, it leads to all kinds of immoral behavior among the humans who use it. Um, and so when we accept this, you know, when we accept this dichotomy between physical harm and moral harm, we're actually kind of accepting an assertion that physical harm is real and moral harm is just a weird idiosyncratic moral rule that religions have. And they have lots of different rules and it's subjective. Who can tell? Um, but physical harm, you know, that's a bright line. We all know what that means. I wonder, I wonder if in some ways, though, you're seeing... Uh, a, a transition on that because some of the the rhetoric in in uh, in defense of transgender transgenderism is um, I mean obviously they'll say they, they they try to do the the harm principle and say if you if you oppose us then we're going to kill ourselves and uh, you know that's, that's physical harm but but they're not all saying that anymore it's it's uh, your opposition to us is is harming us morally I mean it seems to be headed that way so. It's like everyone knows that 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 right. harm is more than just hitting someone or, or killing someone. Um, that you can harm them emotionally, you can harm them mentally, morally, all these different ways. So that's that seems to be evolving. This is where we get into the. This is where we get to our to my conclusion that pluralism is a Trojan horse. In other words, it's a it's not a stable state for a society to be in. It's a transitional period between one orthodoxy and another orthodoxy. So, yeah. you know, um, yes, you know, I don't know what we even call it, but there's some bizarre nascent religion that is that's growing right now. And it's it's um, it's not Christianity. Um, it's something it's probably something new and horrible. Um, and it's it's coming and it's going to if not stopped, it will begin to seek to enforce its own orthodoxies as a majority in the public square. And all of the niceties yeah. about the neutral public square and everybody having a seat on the table, uh, those will very predictably uh, start to fall away. Um, so, you know, the, the, this is now, you know, the, so I guess all of these to tie this back to earlier parts of the conversation, like I guess what I would want to see from a lot of the conservative movement is a greater recognition that, um, I mean, perhaps you've got to use a, a pluralist argument at the federal level to be successful in litigation or, or whatever. But, you know, in a state like Texas, a deep red state, um, we need to be a lot more savvy about seeing pluralism for for the Trojan horse that it is, um, realizing that its logic uh, will take us to the to a place similar to where we are today. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's one of the things I've noticed in studying church history is that that repeated pattern where those who are in the minority they they plead for tolerance when they're in a position of weakness and then they're granted tolerance when they're in a position of weakness um, and then that enables them to to gain more power and influence for themselves and then when they get to a, a certain stage um, they they begin to transition in their rhetoric and it's not just tolerate us it's you know you must yeah. accept us and accept us as equals and uh, and then eventually that happens you accept them as equals in their different views and then it will it, it always comes to the point where they then transition when they have the power to we're not going to tolerate you anymore. Yeah. It's, it's just inevitable. It always happens. And that's exactly what's happening right now in, in this kind of moral cultural revolution to where um, we're, we're, we're starting to enter that phase of no tolerance for dissent. Um, you know, I, I think that really that brings up things we're going to have to return to. In, in the future, um, talk more about pluralism, talk about what, what could be the, the only basis for, for a sound society. But I also think um, getting us into the, the nature of the, the cultural revolution, um, even especially the, the sexual revolution, as, as we've seen it unfolding even in, in violent terms this week, I think that's gonna be important things for us to return to in the future. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think, um... You know, I'll, I'll just end with a pitch for for those of our listeners who are in Texas. Um, give your give your state reps a call. Um, you know what what's I mean viewed through one lens, what's happening is a state that still has um, a number of uh, tips of the hat to Christianity and its formal laws is seeking to significantly soften that uh, to to walk back off of it, and it's, it's what happened at you know, at the federal level, you know, years back and it, um, you know, th th this doesn't, you know, this doesn't end well. We, we need to hold our representatives to a standard where they can, they can kind of confidently just assert like, Hey, you know, Texas is a Christian state always has been, uh, that's reflected in our, in our norms and in our, our culture and, and in some places in our law. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, that that's, you know, that's what we, that's what we really should be hearing from, from our Republican representatives in this state. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, that's a good, uh, good place for us to stop today. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, until next time, hope you'll, you'll follow us online. Um, you can find us on Twitter, American Reformer on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, take a look at our site. We've got some, some great articles that have come out this week on, on topics related to this. And until next time, we will see you guys later. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AMReformer.